We are in Isaiah 61 this morning. If you would open your Bibles to Isaiah 61, please. I've attended a Christian high school as a young man, a Christian college, three Christian seminaries. And uh, everywhere I went, I ran into human beings. Imperfect, sinful, and uh, I found that my aptitude for dealing with that was more a reflection on myself than on them, uh, especially in the younger years. I found myself to be very, very impatient and, quite frankly, arrogant. I think being a young man and being arrogant, I don't think there's anything unusual or transformative about that. I think quite the opposite. It's quite common, natural, worldly. But uh, I remember not just thinking, but saying, if you're here to teach me to be a professional, you should actually be a professional. And um, so I was uh, quite the little handful, um, uh, with, and yet trappings of religiosity. And you probably see that at work. You know, I mean, you all work at the same place, but there's that person who just rags and nags and complains, and it's a reflection of that person. Everybody else is there working, facing the exact same challenges, but you know, so often life and situations are what you bring to them. Well, I went from those Christian environments, especially from uh, high school and college to the work world, and I underestimated the evil in mankind. Uh, whatever I had impatience for in these Christian environments was so amped up and ramped up in the work world. The hypocrisy that I uh, despised in my Christian education was increased by an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude in the work world, because there is no fear of God. And um, yet, none of those hypocrisies are anything like what Israel faced in Jerusalem. The hypocrisy, the evil, nothing that I've ever faced in Christian environments or sec- would compare to what Israel faced in their own land. We saw this in chapter 59. Just let me rehearse this for you. This is God's assessment of Jerusalem. For your hands are defiled with blood. And your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. And, and that's not just gossip. These are lawsuits. These are lawsuits that incarcerate and kill people. He continues, no one enters into suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave a spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them. Who treads on them knows peace. If you tread on the roads, the paths of Jerusalem, you will not know peace. This will be your lot in life. If you walk the paths of Jerusalem, you will not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. That sounds like a rhetorical statement. We're not exactly overspread here with righteousness in Jerusalem. So in Israel, the religious elite were bloody in their oppression of the poor. They had all the pretenses. They had all the station of religion. But there was no escaping them. And just as in secular society, the rich preyed upon the poor, they would destroy the poor. 
even so in Jerusalem society. So it is in that context that we have chapter 61, 12 verses long, that will talk about God's redemption of Jerusalem, God's change to the heart of Jerusalem. If you can imagine living in such a wicked city, look at what God is going to do. We're in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the openings of the prison to those who are bound or blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nation, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word and your transformation of Jerusalem, God, we would pray for this transformation in our own lives. As I have said, Lord, to be an arrogant young man is nothing transformative, nothing new. But Father, to be humble, to be kind, to be loving, to be known as righteous and just. That, that, Father, is transformational. And that is worthy of praise to you for having done that work in the life of a young man or an old man, a young woman or an old woman. And so, God, we pray that you would bless us to have a deposit of this righteousness in our lives today. God, transform us, cleanse us, be honored in our lives. And, Father, be honored in Jerusalem. We would say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. As we look at our outline today, the one who is speaking in the first three verses uh, is anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news. Now, who is this one? It doesn't I say. It could be the prophet Isaiah. It could be the nation of Israel, kind of a metaphor where you have one person in the first person singular speaking for the nation. Or it could be the Messiah himself, Jesus. I would favor it being Jesus in this text. Look at the first three verses with me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And so if this is the voice of Jesus, this would be God the Father 
anointing the Son, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound or blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. By the way, we're going to see a quote from Jesus in just a moment. And he's going to quote verses 1 and that first line in verse number 2, and you're going to see him cut off just before, and the day of vengeance of our God. It's very interesting how Jesus uses this passage and cuts off talking about vengeance in his first coming. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, And the day of the vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, as I said, it was an awful place to live in terms of the wickedness, to give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Ashes would be a sign of mourning. The oil of gladness, like anointing oil, or, or how you would, if we think of aftershave, that would probably be a little bit, you know, if you're going to a celebration, you might anoint your head with oil. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And here's the purpose, in order that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We're talking about a very different Jerusalem when we're saying, look at this guy. Look at these men in Jerusalem. They are oaks of righteousness. I would love to be an oak of righteousness, to be storm-tested, stayed firm in righteousness. It's a great compliment to God's people. As I say, uh, this this, uh, person who has been anointed by the Lord could be the prophet Isaiah. And, uh, but older commentaries would agree with me uh, that this is the Messiah. Uh, newer commentaries tend to favor either the personification of Israel or the prophet himself. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus identified this passage as speaking of him. So I would, I would go that route um, uh, through and through. Uh, not a near fulfillment in the prophet Isaiah and a complete fulfillment in uh, Jesus, but all talking about the Messiah himself, the anointed one of God. You see how it says in verse 1, the Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Anointed anointed one is the meaning of Messiah. So I'm taking this to be the Messiah proper. Hey, listen to Jesus as he identifies himself. And now I'm going to read from Luke 4. You follow along in Isaiah 61.1 and the first line of verse number 2 just to see where he cuts it off. The wording will be slightly different in in our uh, Hebrew to Greek to English, but uh, you'll be able to follow along very well. Listen to Luke 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. That's verse 1 in your text today of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he quits quoting, and the narrator of Luke, uh, Luke himself says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. That's a teaching position in the the, uh, synagogue. When you sat down, it'd be the opposite. You guys would all be standing. I'd be sitting up here in a stool. That would be the way. So then he sat down, And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him, not because he sat down over there in the congregation. No, he sat down to teach. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is saying, this is speaking exactly, precisely of me. 
And of course, that was scandalous in his hometown to be saying that. They did not receive that message well. But it is the truth. He is the anointed one of God. He is our Messiah. Note the task that he has in verse 1. To preach good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To liberate captives. To comfort all who mourn. Now, as I say, and this is kind of a note on eschatology, the study of last things. Uh, If you see how Jesus broke it off. Here he is at his first coming and he breaks it off after the first line of Isaiah 61 verse 2. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Lord's grace. And he leaves off and the day of vengeance of our God. That is entirely consistent with his first coming. What you have in Isaiah 61 verse 2 is you have two lines with 2,000 years between each of the lines. He came the first time to declare grace, to declare salvation. Is it going to end there? Not at all. I mean, we're going to study the book of Revelation here starting in about seven weeks. And when we go, no, we're going to see Messiah is going to come with a much different demeanor in his second coming. And so Isaiah 61, verse number two, it sounds like he's just going to come and do all this stuff at one visit. No, 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 no. Two visits, 2,000 years plus between those visits. And, uh, and, and so that's the way prophecy works. So let's look just to, just to lock in what Jesus did at his first coming to declare grace. You've heard of John 3.16. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there to John 3.16 or if you have a phone with a Bible on it. John 3.16. We'll see this perfectly illustrated. We have just a beautiful gospel verse here in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So we see this in Isaiah 61.1. And we can just pause there and, and, and say, you know, if the father is sending the son and clothing and equipping the son to be our salvation, we can stop and worship the father. He is the author of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. And this, this, so it's not like Jesus had an idea and said, hey, dad, it's not that kind of relationship. Hey, dad, why don't you let me save these people? No, no, no. This is the father purposing from eternity past that he would give his son for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. How is a person saved? How does a person not perish? By believing on the Son that the Father gave, by trusting Him as your Savior. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, that is entirely consistent with Jesus' quote of Isaiah 61, verse number 2, and cutting it off. God did not send me to condemn the world. We could add the words, this time. My mission here is to save the world, to to show you that salvation is available in me if you will trust me. But believe you me, the day of condemnation of the world is coming. It's called the day of the Lord. It is frightful. It is fearful. And it is true. But for now, Jesus just quotes that first part. This is God's program. You and I could learn something from the example of Jesus here. He is coming in wrath and vengeance. 
when he comes again. But in his first coming, he was here for grace, for ministry. He, he, he was rejected by men. He was abused. He was persecuted. He was executed. He gave his life for grace, for, the, for, for, for salvation of mankind. You and I could learn something from the Messiah here. We too could give our lives and endure suffering, endure persecution, and allow vengeance and justice to ride, to rest. Just leave it to God to set things straight. Too often, too often, we want to establish vengeance and justice now for every way that we've been wronged. That was not the way of our Savior. There's so much wrong that Jesus has to address, that he has to address. But his first coming was all about grace and giving himself for mankind, for the will of the Father. So what's your agenda? Is it to give yourself and let vengeance ride? Or are you going to focus on agenda? I think we can learn some things from our Savior. As we look at the suffering of these people, back in Isaiah 61, verse number 1, where he talks about the captives in prison. Uh, you know, debtor's prison serves as an unjust prison. Debtor's prison can be because you spent too much money and you couldn't pay your debt, so they throw you in debtor's prison. But how debtor's prison was used in much of antiquities is some rich person with all the right connections to the legal system would bring you into court, sue you unjustly, just as we read in verse chapter 59, and sue you for everything you're worth and then some so that you cannot pay the lawsuit. So where do you go? You go to debtor's prison, which is convenient for the rich guy because that doesn't leave you out in the streets ready to execute vengeance on him when nobody's looking. You're tidily locked up or executed. And so in this horrid judicial system of Jerusalem, God is going to set things straight. And um, as I say, verse 3, oaks of righteousness. This is celebratory language, garments of, uh, you know, of celebration, um, anointing oil. And, uh, and, and just it's a celebratory environment in which Israel is going to be referred to as oaks of righteousness. A, a totally different reputation than they had. Uh, point number two, God will revive Israel and the people will be priests of God to the world. Look at verse 4 through 7. Verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. Who is they, by the way? The antecedent would be found in verse number 3. Uh, to grant those who mourn in Zion, end um, of verse number 3, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up. So Israel will build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities throughout Israel, the devastations of many generations. Strangers, this would be Gentiles, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of the nation, and, your, and their glory shall be your boast. Uh, and in their glory you will boast. Instead of your shame, I like this verse because instead of shame, it ends with everlasting joy. You see those last two words? Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy joy. This is what God provides. And, and, and if you ever wonder what is heaven like, uh, uh, you know, uh, heaven is a temporary place that we go to and then we return to the new earth, we will see. 
And it's going to be a place of productivity, of living life without the curse of sin on our labor or our bodies. And God promises, he is, he is not shy about saying it is everlasting joy. I can't imagine that. You can't imagine that because we go through ups and downs in this life, right? But God promises a, an eternity of everlasting joy. You might note too, oh, Jason, could you just check the uh, A-track for me? You might note um, in verses 1 and 3, we have the work of the Messiah, changing hearts, freeing captives. Okay, but notice in verse number 4, who gets to work? Who gets busy? It says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. The they is Israel. So the Messiah has done the work in verses 1 through 3, but now Israel gets busy. Israel serves. And again, the, the Bible upholds work as a wonderful thing. Uh, we are imaging God. We are, we are creating. We are recreating in this case. Israel is recreating those things that are destroyed, uh, imaging God in their labor. They get to work. Gentiles, though, are included too. And, and it's not a punitive relationship. Uh, it's very much strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall uh, be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you not as, not as enslavers, uh, not as those who, who are unjust, but they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. So this nation, Israel, before all of the nations around them, I, I take this to be especially in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, um, always difficult to place these things between there and the eternal state. But, but Israel is going to be known as oaks of righteousness and priests of God. What is a priest? Um, a priest, technically, they, they did the work of sacrificing in the temple. They would offer sacrificial animals. But do you remember in the Old Testament how the priest also received a land inheritance in the various tribes, regions? There, there was to be, a, you know, a Levitical cities in each region of Israel when, when Joshua divided out the land. Why were they there? Because you didn't offer sacrifices there. Well, we don't have a lot of information about that that I see in the Old Testament, but I do see two functions. One is they acted as judges. For instance, in Deuteronomy 17, it says, um, you shall come to the Levitical priest and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult with them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So the priest, in, a, in, in association with a judge, would hear your matter, and the priest would advise the judge, and they would talk about the law, the Torah, and they'd come to a legal decision, so the priest judged things. So I would take it to be that Israel would judge the nations. Happily so. The nations will gladly submit to just Justice. The other thing that we see is they had a teaching role. Uh, King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 17 sent the priests and the Levites to teach the people throughout all the cities of Judah the Torah, the law of God. So teaching, judging, those would be some of the things that priests do. That is what I'm understanding Israel to be doing. They will be, also be some kind of an intermediary between the nations and God. Somebody who's pointing people to God. Somebody who's teaching. Somebody who's rendering righteous judgment on, on any concerns or any problems that arise during this millennial kingdom. Peter applies this language to you today. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. He's writing to the church. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why are you a royal priesthood today? In order that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Now here's where it gets a little difficult for you and me because it's more than, it's important that we proclaim. It's important that we use our mouth. That's hard. But this is hard too. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you of evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So you are now the people of God, Peter writes. You are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ. But you are also to maintain a sanctified life in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. Your deeds and your words both are to lead people in the way of God, in the way of Jesus Christ. So Christian, I would say you are in that sense an intermediary. You are in that sense a priest. You are a go-between between God and people because you carry the message of the gospel into dark lives. So it will be with Israel. God covenants with Israel to fulfill this blessing. He covenants. That's a pretty important word when God covenants. Look at verse number 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. Here's the content of the covenant, I believe. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Now, in verses 10 through 12, we have another first-person singular I, and we don't know who's speaking. It could be the Messiah. It could be a personification of Israel. It could be be Isaiah himself, the prophet. Look at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Now, you might say, wait a minute. How does God the Father clothe God the Son with the garments of salvation. And look at that next line. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus is being saved from sin. He is God. He is pure. But when it says he is clothed with salvation, when he is clothed with robes of righteousness, he is equipped to bring salvation and righteousness to the world if you take the voice to be that of the Messiah. And if you look at the human ministry of Jesus... He set aside, we learn, I believe it's in Philippians 1, that we see he set aside the independent exercise of his deity. So when he's born as a baby, he was not lying in the manger with the full consciousness and omnipotence and and omniscience of God, just faking being a goo-goo-ga-ga baby, but instead sitting there thinking, okay, I'm due for a change. Mary, you know, know, I can't talk to her. I got to, you know, whine. Do I need to fuss and cry to get these people's attention? You know, or or just kind of do a mind trick here and and get her to check my diaper? No, uh, Jesus as a baby was as witless as any baby. Luke 2 said he had to grow in wisdom. God the Son, eternal in his omniscience, does not have to grow in wisdom. But baby Jesus had to grow in wisdom. He lived his life as a human being. 
And so when you see him doing miracles as an adult, it's not like, oh, hey, this God thing is kind of coming alive in me. I feel something, you know. Uh, and and, and I, I'm realizing now I'm son of God, I've got these powers that nobody else had. Uh, you know, um, no, that's not how it happened. The miracles of Jesus, as I understand it, are the same as the miracles of Paul. They were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, likewise, uh, as we look at the ministry of Jesus in this earth and bringing salvation and righteousness, it is the ministry of the Father and the Spirit working through the man Jesus, the God-man Jesus, who is experiencing life like a human being. That's my understanding here. So I I think it makes complete sense if you want to take it as, um, as being the voice of Jesus, I will greatly rejoice. It also makes complete sense if you take it as the voice of Israel. I will greatly rejoice because God has clothed me, Israel, with the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adores himself, herself with her jewels, verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Just as sure as you see gardens being planted and just coming to life in the middle of summer and bearing fruit in harvest, even so righteousness is going to be growing in Jerusalem. God Almighty is going to do this. I will point out that he says in verse number 8, at the end of the verse, I will make an everlasting covenant. The word make there is the word cut. And every time you see, I will make a covenant in the Old Testament, every time it says, cut a covenant. And what that means is it was actually a sacrifice. You would take a dead animal, you'd slaughter an animal, you would cut it in half, maybe multiple animals, and you'd place each half on either side of a path. You would make your promise and you would walk through the dead carcasses, right through the middle of them. And, you know, there's a couple of debated meanings of this. And and the one I, I think represents it best is, if I don't keep my word, may I be split into and utterly destroyed like these animals have been. Uh, I, the, the closest thing I always like to use to this, and I'm sorry, Cornerstone members, I always use this example, but whenever you'd be a boy, uh, back in my boyhood, you'd make a promise and they'd say, okay, sign it in blood. I never did that. I was too chicken to poke myself. And I always wondered what it meant. I mean, if I sign it in blood and I don't keep my word, what does that mean? That means this person, I think, can come after me and take my life. Even so, I think that was in a much more serious way, a much more profound way, cutting a covenant. So God places his life on the line for this. He said, as sure as I live, as sure as I will live, Israel is going to be a place of righteousness. Now, Christian, you and I want to taste that now. You and I will have this righteousness when we're in God's presence. But we are to put it on even now. We are to grow in righteousness. And throughout the Bible, we see promises that when you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, you grow in righteousness. So I think two things that we could do here in this, te- this section, this last point, is number one, pause for just a moment and worship God the Father for his work. Because that may be the point of the text. When, when the Messiah says, he has clothed me in the garments of salvation, he has clothed me in the robes of righteousness, I bring salvation to the people of Israel and to the nations because God the Father has worked through me. And so I think it is appropriate for us to stop and worship God the Father and to praise Him that He is the author of our salvation. 
The second thing that I think we need to do is pause and just see the pairing um, in verse 10 of the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness. Now, there is a sense in which this robe of righteousness is our standing. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But I also think this robe is something we're to be putting on now. Salvation, having faith in God, is always accompanied with repentance. There's a hard attitude of repentance, of turning from sin. And when you turn from sin and you turn toward the Jesus, good works and sanctification always happen. Not perfection, but progressive improvement. It always happens in the Scripture. Good works always accompany salvation. And so there's not only a a garment of salvation, but there's a robe of righteousness. I'll read again from 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil of you against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, Isaiah 61. God is sending Messiah to cleanse Israel to transform her into a nation of priests, a wicked nation where there is no peace in their pathway. The religious elites are complete hypocrites beyond anything you or I have ever experienced. The Spirit of God will change them. The Spirit of God was on Messiah to come to Jerusalem and proclaim all that Jesus proclaimed about sin, about judgment, about eternal life in Him. Jesus came to free us and to establish righteousness in us. We are now intermediaries today, even as Israel will be perfectly in the kingdom. Intermediaries before God, between the world and God, Israel will be pointing the nations to Christ. We are today to allow God to clothe us in righteousness so that we can glorify Him before the nation. And God has opened up the door on eternity just a bit. Eternal joy. We saw that phrase today. Eternal joy. We saw the holy city, at least in the millennial kingdom, where, yes, we saw last week the Gentiles will bring their treasures to the holy city, but you know what? Some of us are going to stay. Hey, I can stand here and watch your sheep. You are a nation of priests. I can plant your fields. I can dress your vines. You are a nation of priests. Let me serve you. And it would be just a delight to honor Israel. And Israel will be delighted to be honored. Such is our eternity, such is our inheritance, such is God's faithfulness to his people Israel. He has cut a covenant guaranteeing this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your goodness to Israel. Though, Lord, we are not Israel, and we do not have the literal direct promises that Israel enjoys. We do enjoy many covenant-like benefits as Gentiles. Uh, Father, it's just all a reflection of your character, of your grace, of your magnanimity toward us. We thank you for your goodness. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to Israel. We know that if you're keeping your word with Israel, you will keep your word with us. That in Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we will have everlasting joy. God, I pray for Anyone who doesn't understand this concept today, that that just isn't clear, I pray that you would bless them as they open your word, as they read it. Help them to understand that they need to turn from sin and turn toward Jesus for a new relationship, a relationship with a Savior. Father, I pray for Christians in this room today. I pray that you would help us to live in a way that is consistent with your word. 
Help us to be guided by your Spirit and your Word. Help us to be cleansed from our sin. God, help us to be cleansed from our arrogance and our hypocrisy. I pray that you'd be pleased in us. In Jesus' name, amen.